This is Podcast Raleigh with your hosts Ashton and Hayes. We always partner with a community agency, Ashton, and oftentimes they'll go in and say, Hey, friends, these are our friends from the community law clinic. You can trust them. I've actually heard community advocates say to potential clients, You can trust them. And that's because a lot of people have negative experiences with the criminal justice system and just don't have that trust. But what is great is that when we do a clinic like we did in Nash County and the public sees DAs and judges there to help, it rebuilds trust. And we love being a part of that process. Welcome into Podcast Raleigh, season four, episode seven. In this episode, we talked to Ashley Campbell, director of the Blanchard Community Law Clinic at Campbell University's Law School in downtown Raleigh. We'll learn about what a law clinic is, what the Blanchard Clinic does in our community, how Ashley got involved with it, and why it's such a big passion of hers. We'll also find out why it's a little bit extra special being a member of the Wake County Bar. But first, a word from our local Raleigh sponsors, Steel Residential and Papa Murphy's Take and Bake Pizza. If you're trying to figure out what to do in the Triangle's complicated real estate market, you need an expert on your side. You need someone with experience and knowledge of the nuances of our local market. You need someone who's going to be honest and reliable. You need the team at Steel Residential. Whether you're looking to buy, rent, invest, or manage your property, Steel Residential can give you the guidance that you need to make the right decisions for you. Give them a call at 919-443-5834 or visit them at steelresidential.com. That's S-T-E-E-L-E residential.com. Any day is a great day for a Papa Murphy's Take and Bake Pizza. Their fresh ingredients and pizzas made from scratch daily mean you get a hot baked meal without doing any of the work. But now, with their 1099 Tuesdays, you have even more reason to go to Papa Murphy's on a Tuesday. Any large pizza is just 1099 on 1099 Tuesdays at Papa Murphy's. Enjoy a hot, fresh meal from your oven made fresh daily at Papa Murphy's. Order online at papamurphys.com. Ashley Campbell first came to the Triangle for college and law school and worked at the North Carolina General Assembly. But when it came time to decide where to put down roots, she wasn't sure she was ready to give up the Charlotte lifestyle. But she's now a proud longtime member of the Wake County Bar and a decorated and experienced real estate attorney spending years with the firm Ragsdale Liggett. Her big passion, though, has always been helping those in need, which is why she's always worked with and supported legal aid and how she became the director of Campbell's Blanchard Community Law Clinic. The clinic helps train future attorneys while simultaneously providing legal services for folks who may have trouble affording or even understanding how to resolve their legal issues. One of the clinic's two main areas of focus is criminal record expunction and driver's license suspensions. We talked about why these are such big issues, all about what the clinic does and how it operates, and why law clinics are so important. But we started by asking Ashley Campbell how she ended up in Raleigh. I moved to Raleigh from Charlotte, where I was living at the time. I was working at Legal Aid of North Carolina in the Gastonia office, providing legal services to people in Gaston, Cleveland, and Lincoln counties. But I decided I wanted to apply for a job at the North Carolina General Assembly. And so I did that, and I got a job there, and I moved to Raleigh and started working in the bill drafting division at the General Assembly. What uh, what? Well, I want to start with two things. What uh, interests you in law to begin with? And then what interests you in bringing you to the General Assembly? So I, it is such a cliche that I fell in love with the law watching 
uh, Perry Mason. So I was a latchkey kid and my brother and I came home every day after school. We watched lots of TV until our mom came home. And so we watched all of those old Perry Mason episodes. I don't have any lawyers in my family. In fact, my brother and I were the first people in our family to go to uh, college. So I wasn't ever able to observe lawyers in real life, but I admired the ones I saw on TV. As I got older, I got really interested in politics and I grew up in the 90s. I was in high school in the 90s, and that's when James Carville and George Stephanopoulos ran Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, and there was a documentary about it called The War Room that was actually really famous. And I loved that documentary, and I decided I wanted to run political campaigns and work in politics. So I actually went to law school to work in politics, and I spent my summers working in the political area with lobbyists, also in Congress. But when I got out of law school, I had a difficult time finding a job in politics that would pay my law school loans. (laughs) So a job became open at Legal Aid of North Carolina, and I took that job because it was serving people in my community, which was really interesting to me. Once I stepped into the courtroom, I really fell in love with the courtroom in a way that I never knew that I would or could. And that is really why I think I became a litigator like I am today. And so bill drafting is such a really specific, highly detailed kind of nuanced area. What was appealing to you about that? So I was excited about being able to go work at the North Carolina General Assembly and to be a part of the political process. Working in bill drafting was actually really fun because members would bring their ideas to us about legislation they wanted to pass, and it would be our responsibility to turn that into a bill, to look at the statutory language and propose a change. And I also staffed the House Finance Committee. So when the House Finance Committee would meet to do a lot of different important types of work, we would be the lawyers who would answer their questions and get information that they needed. So it was really, it was, um, there was a lot of energy in that work. It was fun to be a part of the whole process of seeing an idea become law. And when you came to Raleigh, when you moved here, presumably it wasn't your very first time visiting Raleigh, but kind of what were some of your early experiences or your early memories? Anything that really made an impression? I really liked Raleigh right out of the gate. I love being in a community where there are colleges and universities. And of course we have many here in Raleigh and around us. I went to school at UNC Chapel Hill, so it was great to be close to you to Chapel Hill. My husband also went to Chapel Hill. So it was great to be back and be able to go to football games on the weekends. But Raleigh was really different than even just back in 2005. So that was only 17 years ago. But the only real action was on Glenwood Avenue, Glenwood South. There really weren't all of the restaurants downtown like there are now. Fayetteville Street was still closed off. So it's been really fun to watch this city grow and have so many great restaurants and Uh, so many great things to do and see and be a part of. All right. So be honest with us though. You had some familiarity with Raleigh, but obviously you grew up in Charlotte and and you're living down in that area. Or I didn't, uh, did you grow up in Charlotte? I grew up in Gaston County, which is right beside Charlotte. Yes. You said that right. Um, So you obviously came for the job because this is where the North Carolina General Assembly is, but in doing so, were you thinking, yes, and I get to live in Raleigh or you're like, well, I'm going for the job, but I, I, I we'll see what I think about Raleigh. That's a great question because there was a big split between 
my now husband and me about living in Charlotte or Raleigh. Charlotte is a really fun place to live, especially when you're in your 20s and you're single. And so there's a there's a whole culture of after work, spending time together, um, you know, coming down on College Street and hanging out. So so Charlotte was a really fun place. I love Charlotte. But uh, my husband lived here and then the job was here. So that made made the decision. In retrospect, though, I'm really glad that we're here. I think it's a great place to raise a family. And I've, I've so enjoyed being a member of the bar here because if you're a lawyer and you're a member of the bar in Wake County, the governor is a member of your bar. The attorney general is a member of your bar. When you go to the bar luncheons, you see members of the North Carolina Supreme Court having lunch with you at your table. So it's really fun to be here and be a lawyer. Hadn't even considered that kind of... I don't want to say access, but that's sort of the, just a different setting of who's in your, you know, your circles and things like that, because you're in the, the Capitol. So you were talking about when you came to Raleigh, Fatal Street was still closed, which definitely means Campbell Law School was not in downtown Raleigh. Um, when did kind of Campbell come onto your radar and when did you start getting involved with the clinic there? So Campbell moved to Raleigh about 11 years ago and it came on my radar soon after that. So I was in private practice at Ragstell Liggett doing commercial and real estate litigation work, but I was continuing to be a volunteer lawyer with Legal Aid of North Carolina. So I was handling domestic violence cases as a volunteer. Campbell had a program where students were representing clients in those domestic violence hearings. So I partnered with Campbell as a volunteer lawyer, and I supervised their law students who were providing pro bono legal services to clients. So I got involved at Campbell just to help students learn how to do courtroom advocacy. In 2016, I was incoming president of our bar association and I was at a cocktail hour and I saw Dean Leonard, who I knew from the bar, and he told me about this position that was becoming available at Campbell to open a new community law clinic. And its mission was going to be to provide legal services to low-income people, which has really been my life's passion. Even when I wasn't working at Legal Aid, I have always volunteered with Legal Aid. And so after some thinking and some talking with the dean, I decided this is a move I wanted to make and I wanted to come to Campbell. It seems like he really zeroed in knowing your background and <laughs> knew exactly who to ask. To he, did. he did. <laughs> he put on the hard press. Um, so tell us some details about uh, a, a law clinic in general. Like how does a law clinic work versus a law firm? And then we'll get into some of the details of the specific clinic that you when I tell people about student practice in legal clinics, I often compare it to what they see on TV where uh, medical students are residents, right? They've not graduated yet from medical school, but they're still able to treat patients. Well, with, with law students, it's similar. Law students who are in law school can practice law under the supervision of a licensed lawyer. And that means they can do all of the things that a licensed lawyer can do, so long as they are being adequately supervised by the lawyer. So a legal clinic is a class. It's part of the course schedule at the law school. And we enroll up to 15 students a semester. So they join our class, but they come over to our clinic and they handle real cases for real clients. So the class is providing legal representation to our clients. So it's a real opportunity to get hands-on experience. Of course, the students love it. 
they are ready to take the knowledge they've learned in the classroom and put it to practical use. Is Campbell unique in having uh, law clinics or is this something that most law schools um, kind of stand up as, as part of their role in their communities? Most law schools have clinics today. It's referred to in academia as experiential education. That means giving students an opportunity to really experience what they're going to do once they graduate. And so all schools now uh, have some type of clinic available to students. And of course, at Campbell, we have four of them. Uh, looking specifically at the Blanchard Community Law Clinic, um, could you you told us about how you became involved in, in it. What uh, is it have a certain focus? What, what what exactly are the services that it performs? It does. So the Blanchard Community Law Clinic was established with the purpose of serving the Wake County community. So it is intended to be a resource for the entire community. It's located outside of the law school. Our office is near the pit in downtown Raleigh. So we have our own external location where clients can come in and out and meet with us here. And the mission of the clinic is to help people who've got some legal impediment in their lives that is preventing them from moving forward. So we receive a lot of our referrals from community agencies. So for example, Step Up Ministry helps its uh, participants find better jobs and housing. And so they may refer a client to us who doesn't have her driver's license and needs help getting it restored. So community agencies who are working with people who are motivated to change their lives for the better will refer their clients to us so that we can partner with them and help them remove that legal barrier so that they can get a better job or a better home or move forward with greater stability in their lives. You mentioned driver's license reinstatement, and but what are some other examples of services that people come to you all for that you know some people may think are pretty easy to take care of, but the reality is the legal hurdles are pretty significant? So as you mentioned, driver's license restoration is a huge one. There are 10 and a half million people in North Carolina. A million people have suspended driver's licenses for failure to pay court costs or failure to appear. So it's a massive problem. And obviously there's a lot of need there. So we do quite a bit of driver's license restoration. We also help with criminal record expunction. So what we've seen is that almost all employers now run criminal background checks on their employees, which of course didn't happen in the 90s before there was an internet, right? So what you've seen is that over time, people have really not been able to move beyond their criminal record, even for things that occurred 20, 25 years ago. So we look at what North Carolina law allows in terms of criminal record expunction, and we will remove criminal convictions from our clients' records in accordance with law. What's so great about criminal record expunction is that it's a real bipartisan issue. There's bipartisan support for expunction because People want people to be able to work if that's what they want to do. And so we help our, our clients expunge criminal records. And we also help with debt uh, relief. So if you have a judgment against you, maybe for an old credit card bill, maybe you have a $3,000 judgment against you that you can't pay, that could impact your ability to get credit, right? That gives you a bad credit score. So we may help that client negotiate with the uh, debt holder to get that paid off so that the client can improve their credit. Those are just three areas where we practice. We do other uh, work as well. We do landlord tenant. We help uh, victims of domestic violence. Sometimes we help with insurance disputes and other types of cases.
Well, and so many of those seem like relatively small, you know, pretty minor things to fix, but they have such lasting impacts in so many other places. You know, the, the credit ding affects where you can get housing and the sorts of um, uh, availability of additional credit to you and then things like that. So I think it's it's so interesting for me to think about how something so relatively small in the grand scheme of things that is so hard to get rid of, so hard to take care of, has such a lasting impact. Ashton, you're so right. And we talk to our law students about that. We tell them, look, with your legal knowledge and expertise, you can spend three hours and help someone resolve an issue that has been a barrier for the last 15 years. You're right. Some of the legal work is not particularly complicated, but hugely impactful, which is also why the law students love to do this work, because they are able to see the impact on their clients' lives in real time. Um, a couple of nuts and bolts questions. You said it's it's uh, for Wake County users. So does that mean I could walk in to the, the clinic tomorrow or, or call and make an appointment and walk in and, and ask for help? Um, is there anything that limits anyone from using it? What we ask people to do is to call our intake line uh, rather than walk in. But we do do telephone intake every day. Depending upon our caseload, sometimes we have to shut our intake down until we get through our wait list, but we encourage clients to call and we will let them know if we can handle their case at that time. We all, If we're not able to handle it, sometimes we can refer it out to a volunteer lawyer or refer them to other resources in the community that may be taking cases. Got you. And then we always like to talk money on this show. It's not fun, but it's informational. Um is, it, is everything free? Is it a sliding scale? Do people pay anything? And then on the flip side, how are you guys funded? Um, how is obviously law students part of their class? Uh, you can see that, but, um, but otherwise, how are you guys funded? So all of our services are free to our clients. So our clients do not pay anything for the legal work that we do for them. It's important to know too, that the state bar regulates law school legal clinics and doesn't allow us to charge them um, a fee, but of course they are all very low income. So all of our clients are 200% or below of the federal poverty limit. So that's less than $20,000 a year for an individual. Um, in terms of how we're funded, we are supported by the law school. We also have external funders and we are always looking for people to help support our work. It's actually expensive to run a legal clinic. It's about $250,000 a year for us to run our legal clinic with our office space and three lawyers and one full-time support staff. So it's expensive from an educational perspective to do this work. But of course, when you look at the number of people that we serve, it's a great investment. Last year, we served over 400 clients. We helped 300 clients uh, remove criminal charges and convictions from their records. So we've, we were able to really um, to use those dollars wisely and effectively and efficiently. We are currently in talks with the city council to see if they will support some of our work. And we've been so encouraged uh, and heartened by the fact that the Raleigh City Council is uh, interested in supporting us. We also have support from the Bob and Pat Barker Foundation. That is a foundation that is committed to reducing recidivism. So reducing the number of people who go back to prison following incarceration. So we have funding partners and are always looking for more. It sounds like you mentioned some funding partners and you've also talked about Step Up and then some of the other you know places that you can make referrals. It feels like there are a lot of partnerships that your work depends on. What are some? Who are some of the other groups that you partner with primarily? You are so right. So partnership and collaboration is, a, is really important to us. 
as a value, but also in order to be successful, we recognize that partnership and collaboration is important. We have a really close relationship with the officials in the Wake County Justice uh, system. So Lauren Freeman, uh, the public defender, the clerk of court, Blair Williams, um, several of the judges have all collaborated with us on expunction clinics. We are working with Lauren Freeman, who is the district attorney on driver's license restoration here. We also collaborate with district attorneys and uh, judges from other counties. We just did a clinic in Nash, Wilson, and Edgecombe County and worked with the DAs and judges there to make that happen. So we took the show on the road and took all of our students down to Nash County to do that. So we collaborate with the Equal Access to Justice Commission, the Pro Bono Resources, Center, Legal Aid of North Carolina, the North Carolina Justice Center, all of the partners and uh, all of the folks in the legal services realm, we partner in one way or another. Back in a minute with more Podcast Rally. you want a hot meal fresh out of your own oven without having to do any of the work? Papa Murphy's Take and Bake Pizza is the answer. Busy parents, starving college kids, babysitters, hungry teenagers, Papa Murphy's Take and Bake Pizza is perfect for everyone in Raleigh. They've got nine locations in Wake County. Find the one nearest you and order online at papamurphys.com. They use only fresh ingredients, including produce from local vendors, and gluten-free options are available. If you want the taste of a great pizza with no wait for a table, go to Papa Murphy's Take and Bake Pizza. What is happening in the real estate market? Is it staying hot? Cooling down? Is it the right time to sell? Should you rent or buy? Is now a good time to purchase an investment property? Real estate decisions come with a lot of questions. Every situation is unique, so when you're ready to start the conversation, reach out to the team at Steel Residential and they'll help you navigate the questions and find the right answers for you. Whether you're looking to buy, rent, invest, or need someone to manage your investment property, call Steel at 919-443-5834 or visit them at steelresidential.com. That's S-T-E-E-L-E residential.com. All right. I'm just curious. Um, obviously, every case is a little bit different and, and we don't have to go through all the details, but just as a matter of practice, since it's one of the things you guys do routinely, what does the process look like of, for example, getting a driver's license you know, restored? Let's say I got a speeding ticket three years ago that I'd never appeared for, never paid. And because of that, I assume at some point they revoke my license and I come to meet with a lawyer. Is it a matter of just calling the DMV, filling out a form? Like, what does that process look like? Hey, that's a really good question. So what we see often is that someone will have gotten a ticket, let's say five years ago. And let's say they missed court for whatever reason. And so that would be a failure to appear in court. Their license will be suspended approximately 60 days after that failure to appear in court. And what, so sometimes people maybe got a ticket and forgot about it. If, if that's ever happened to any of your listeners where the ticket has slid down between, between your seats and you've forgotten that you even had a court hearing. So sometimes people are driving not without knowing their licenses are suspended. So you could be driving then Hayes under this scenario. And then six months later, you get pulled over for speeding. And now you've gotten a speeding ticket and a driving while license revoked ticket. So obviously you've got more fees and fines that are building up at that point. 
If you continue driving and you don't resolve that first issue, your license is going to stay suspended. So what oftentimes will happen is that people continue driving and they rack up five, six, or seven potential issues. So sometimes they come to us and they've got issues in three counties. So we've got to work in all of those counties to get them resolved. But again, they almost always relate back to one incident where either you forgot you had a court date, you missed it for some reason, or you couldn't pay, you went to court, but you couldn't pay what you owed. You know, what we know is that 50% of Americans cannot afford a $400 unexpected expense. Well, most Fees add up to be more than $400 on a speeding ticket or on a failing to wear a seatbelt ticket, for example. So we see that our clients simply can't pay these. So we we work to resolve it with each individual county. Sometimes it requires a court appearance. Sometimes we can pick up the phone, just like you said, and talk to a DA and talk to the DA about what happened and convince them to dismiss it. But our goal is always to get the person to where they can go to the DMV get their license restored. It's so good for all of us because of course, then they are insured and they're driving with insurance. And those of us, other drivers on the road are protected by that driver having insurance. So we all want people driving legally. And so it's a, this is a path forward to do that. And do you find, and I wonder if it's even different with people who are coming to you through your intake line versus people who you might be going out to at in different events, but do you find ever that there's a trust barrier with um, clients? Yes. That's a great question, Ashton. Many of our clients do not trust the justice system. They often don't trust us. Um, sometimes we, when we go into a community, we always are invited into communities. You know, we understand that it's not our job to show up and tell people what is good or right for them, that we we want to be asked and invited to come provide a service. And we ask the community, what is it that you need from us? And that's what we show up to do. We always partner with a community agency, Ashton, and oftentimes they'll go in and say, hey, friends, these are our friends from the community law clinic. You can trust them. I've actually heard community advocates say to potential clients, you can trust them. And that's because a lot of people have negative experiences with the criminal justice system and and just don't have that trust. But what is great is that when we do a clinic like we did in Nash County that I mentioned earlier a month ago, and the public sees DAs and judges there to help, it rebuilds trust. And we love being a part of that process. Um, I imagine that students, if I were a student, a law student, and I was working with the clinic, I I would think what I'm going to learn here is how to um, contact a DMV, how to get a record expunged, right? Do you find it, and this is being kind of cheesy or cliche, and we, you find that the education is more about them seeing that type of client and learning that, that there are people out there that don't trust the judicial system more than the nuts and bolts, X's and O's that, that obviously they're there to learn as well? So it's both. And that's a that's a really insightful question because I think a lot of students do enroll in the clinic because they want that practical experience. They want to represent clients in court hearings. They want to present evidence like they've learned how to do in class. But when they actually get here and they begin hearing the stories from their clients and learning more about what it means to live in poverty and the challenges that people face, it really opens their eyes and impacts them in truly meaningful ways. 
I imagine uh, building empathy is a good thing and something that we probably need uh, more of in, in every system, including the judicial one. So I, I just, I think that's great. Um, the, I read about, and I obviously am not an expert on it, the Second Chance Act that was passed in 2020. You mentioned there's bipartisan support for, uh, for uh, record expunction. This was, uh, I, I believe I read it was unanimously passed, so bipartisan support. And now I'm even more curious because I realize that you're into bill writing. So who knows? Maybe you even had a hand in writing this stuff. Tell us how it changed or affected your work in 2020. And then uh, as a follow-up question, are there other policy changes that you're like, man, we need to do this and everyone would be on board with it and it would help our clients? So the Second Chance Act was brought to the General Assembly by community activists and people who were working with previously incarcerated people or who had been previously incarcerated themselves or had been involved in the justice system in one way or the other and saw the devastating impact that the criminal records were having on the community. So that's where this legislation uh, came from. It came from the community. It was wonderful to see the the bipartisan unanimous support for it. And what the Second Chance Act did was it expanded the ability for people to get expunctions. So not every uh, criminal conviction is eligible to be expunged. Only certain convictions are eligible to be expunged. And that has been expanded. So there are now more charges and convictions that can be expunged that you may have gotten as a juvenile. So if someone got a conviction as a 16 or 17 year old, the legislature has said, we're willing to go back and and have some grace for some of those convictions and, and let those be expunged because those things happened when you were younger. And they also expanded eligibility for adult convictions. So that's what the that's what the law did. There are still some things that we would like to see happen. So as I mentioned before with driver's license restoration, the fees and fines that are building up for individuals in the court system are leading to many people being suspended. And they're being suspended because they're poor, because they can't pay these amounts. So we are advocating for some changes in the way that those are assessed at the conviction stage. So when someone pleads guilty, for example, to not wearing a seatbelt, we are advocating for the court to do an inquiry as to whether or not the person can actually pay a fee or fine. So that's one thing that we are advocating for. We are also, we would like to see expunction expanded. It's still very limited in North Carolina. We do not lobby and we are not registered lobbyists, but what we do provide is data to support some of these proposed policy changes. So we're able to look at the hundreds of people that we served and provide feedback and data on, um, you know, if, if we helped Ashton get a criminal record expunction, in some cases we're able to show that in six months, Ashton was able to get a better job and better housing as a result of that. I appreciate you using Ashton as the example. <laughs> it's almost always Ashton, Ashton has no criminal record. Oh, no, it's, she's the one that's less likely to have one. You're like, if I say the haze, it might get too close to home there. So do you find then that there is, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, the bipartisan support idea of it. Do you find that generally there is bipartisan support for a lot of the ideas and it's just a process of getting them passed in a time where everything is high priority? Or do you feel like there's a little bit of push and pull between different groups? Well, not everyone agrees on everything. Certainly there are there are ideas that are proposed by the North Carolina Justice Center that others may not like. Um, 
But what I do find is that when people are more educated about what's happening, they are more open to considering changes. So I speak, for example, to the Chamber of Commerce, and I've shared uh, stories about driver's license uh, issues. And that's a relative, you know, that's a business-minded group. It's a more conservative group than the North Carolina Justice Center, which I just use as an example. And they are just as concerned about the problem when they see the data and the facts. You know, they look at it and say, hey, this is an issue. This is a concern that we need to address. So I find that the more people really know, the more educated they are, the more likely they are to agree that a, that a change is needed and to work together to accomplish that. It's actually wonderful to work around issues that people agree on. It, you know, it seems like we're so divided right now as a society. But honestly, I find that the more we, we talk and share, the more we actually agree. I'm thinking about, too, even just where the, the labor market is right now. I mean, all of these little things, a person's inability to get to and from work. You know, it seems like that community might be even more open minded right now to, to making some changes. Yes. And so what you see also, for example, are employers. So you see employers who support the idea of criminal record expunction because they say, hey, I can't hire Susie because she's got this old assault conviction, which could be a simple assault. That could be, you know, I got into an argument in my driveway with my neighbor. OK, so I can't hire Susie because I've got liability. But I support expunction because if Susie could just get this expunged, I'm happy to hire her. So employers are oftentimes put in the position of having liability because of these criminal uh, charges that are showing up. So they support expunction. Um, and we talked about supervision. Uh, of, are you the you're the director? Are you the only supervisor of the law clinic as well? I am the director, and I am a lawyer. But there are also two other lawyers here at the clinic. So Emily Meester is one of our lawyers. She was a public defender in Wake County for 14 years. She's an outstanding lawyer, and is really known as one of the most preeminent experts on driver's license restoration in the state. Emily trains lawyers all over the state with driver's license work. Tolu Adewale joined us from Legal Aid of North Carolina. He's done quite a few things over at Legal Aid, including landlord-tenant representation and expunction. So Tolu joined us last year. So there are three lawyers in the clinic. What does the supervision part look like? I mean, I assume you're not sitting there reading every one of their briefs, but there's got to be, what does that look like? Well, we really believe in the sort of pushing the baby bird out of the nest philosophy of training. You know, we give them real freedom. We, we supervise them closely, but we don't micromanage them. We really, you know, they are drafting all of their correspondence. Of course, we're reading it, giving them feedback and approving it, but they're, they're drafting it. They're making the phone calls to their clients. They're communicating the legal advice. They're preparing for their hearings. Of course, again, with our assistance and our oversight, we really uh, challenge them to take control of their cases, to come to us and tell us what the strategy should be versus us telling them what it should be. And they rise to the challenge. So there are four law clinics at Campbell. Is that correct? That's right. And what are the other three? There is a family Sorry law clinic. Sorry for the pop quiz. <laughs> There's a family law clinic that started last year which is wonderful because family law is one of the greatest unmet legal needs of North Carolinians. 
So the establishment of that clinic has been just a wonderful gift to our community. There's also the business law clinic, which helps upcoming entrepreneurs draft business documents so that they can form an LLC, uh, perhaps, you know, patent an invention or whatever it is that they want to do. So that's our business law clinic. And the final clinic is our restorative justice clinic. John Powell is the director. He's he's well known in the area of restorative justice. And this is about uh, they go into schools, they do mediations in prisons to help people resolve sort of issues and conflicts that arise as a result of involvement in the criminal justice system. And so does each clinic sort of measure its own, its success similarly, or do other kind of different things that you look for in each to, to determine how successful the group is? The clinics are really independent. We're all located in different locations. We're all outside of the law school, except for the restorative justice clinic. So each of them is really like their own little student-run law firm. Um, I'm curious, uh, just Rich Leonard, the uh, the dean of Campbell Law School. He's I, I don't know him real well personally. I, I knew his sons growing up, but he seems like a very interesting guy. And, and the guy sort of shepherded the people's law school from, from Campbell into Raleigh. Um, what's it like working with him? Obviously, you had some high opinion or trust of him, and that you took the role when he tapped you for it. But uh, but I'm I'm just curious what he's like as a, as a dean. So Dean Leonard was a federal bankruptcy judge before he came over to the law school to serve as dean. So he left a lifetime appointment on the bench to come over and be dean. And and that's because he said, you know, he was really curious about trying something new. He is a terrific dean. He has been so instrumental in modernizing the law school. Melissa Essery, our prior dean, who is also a tremendous teacher and person, got us to Raleigh and on sound footing. And, and Dean Leonard has really helped us integrate ourselves into the Raleigh legal community with a mentorship program, with the establishment of all of these clinics. Uh, we have a, a student body that's uh, stronger than ever. We have higher class, incoming class numbers than ever. Great bar passage rate. He's just been terrific to work with. You know, it's also interesting to know a lot of people don't know this about him. He was nominated to the fourth circuit twice um, but never actually got appointed because of political issues. He's a really impressive judge and person. And I would say from an outsider's perspective, Campbell has been such a great community partner across the board since their move to downtown. Uh, I always heard that, that Raleigh was the only state capital that didn't have a law school in it until Campbell moved here. We never fact check that, but, uh, but it seems to be true. But that it, it seems like... From the way you described it, I'm going to ask this actually in the next question, um, that with with the legal community in Raleigh, it, it only made, made sense for there to be a law school here. You kind of mentioned it earlier of how, you know, you, you joined the Wake County Bar and the governor and the attorney general in your bar. We often ask our guests about their field. You know, if we had, we had a, a director of sports tourism uh, in, a, in our previous episode, we said, is Raleigh a good sports town? If we have a musician, we say, is Raleigh a good music town? I don't know how to ask that about law and you kind of hit on it on what makes it interesting, but is Raleigh or Wake County like a, a cool place to be a lawyer, a good place to be a lawyer and, and what might make it an even better place? It is the best place to be a lawyer. Uh, this is the 10th judicial district in North Carolina. So it's comprised of 6,700 lawyers. There are 30,000 lawyers in the state of North Carolina. We are the largest bar association. As I mentioned before, some of our, 
sort of most important jurists are uh, members of our bar. And but more than that, it is such a collegial bar, very kind, very warm and welcoming, and so competent, so professional. The the lawyering in this community is just outstanding. I look around and admire so many of my fellow attorneys. And it's just really fun to practice with them. And it, it's a great place to be a lawyer. Come to Raleigh and be a lawyer. <laughs> is there anything you would do to change or improve the, the community from that perspective? My greatest passion is serving low-income people because I believe that access to justice is a core American value that that every person uh, should be able to access our judicial system. And, and that typically means having a lawyer to represent you or help you through that process. We have not accomplished that as a society. And it's something I will continue to work for and advocate for. So if I could change anything, I would love to have millions of dollars to hire lawyers to provide legal services for um, our poorest neighbors. Um, but, you know, I would just encourage us as a bar, as I do, to continue to provide pro bono legal services, to continue to make monetary contributions to Legal Ed of North Carolina, to clinics like ours that provide free legal services so that we can just make sure that access to justice is available for everyone in our community. And to that end, is there space in the in this work for additional lawyers? If someone is listening and wants to get involved or wants to give their skills in some way, is that possible? Absolutely. So they can contact us and become a volunteer lawyer with our clinic. They can contact Legal Aid of North Carolina and serve in a capacity as a pro bono attorney there. And then I would just encourage them to to you know, follow rule 6.1, which is a, a lawyer rule, which says we need to provide financial resources to legal services. So I would encourage them to give. And I would encourage them to consider going into this work. It is incredibly rewarding. And um, it's it's just some of the best work you can possibly do. Um, you seem like someone who enjoys your work. Uh, you passionate about it from a, a early part of your career and still are. So I'm sure that you find fun in it, but we all have to do things outside of our work too. What are some of the things that you do uh, for fun or for leisure? So I have two children. Uh, Henry is 12 and Caroline is almost 10. So I spend a lot of time with them. We do, they do a lot of sports. So they um, do I-9 for all the, all the parents out there. They'll recognize these references. They do I-9 sports. They do sports with Raleigh Parks and Rec. So, um, you know, I was an assistant softball coach for a while with my daughter. So we do a lot in the community with our children. And but I am also um, hiking the Appalachian Trail. So when I was when I was younger, it was my goal to hike the entire 2200 mile Appalachian Trail, which I did not do before I started working. And so um, about six years ago, I decided I was going to do it anyway and figure out a way to do it. So I go every summer for about 10 days and try to hike about a hundred miles. So yeah, it's going to take, I guess, 22 years to do it, but, but Hey, um, there's time. 
And is that's that a family awesome. adventure or is that a solo excursion? I do. it. So I, I started solo and I've gotten one of my friends to do it with me. So one of my good friends I met in Raleigh, her name's Morgan Rutherford. She's hiking it with me. She had never camped <laughs> before we started doing this. So um, she's learned a lot, but it's a lot of fun. You know, people who've never hiked the trail don't know, you know, there are no showers and bathrooms and trash cans on the Appalachian Trail. You know, you put your, your pack on your back and you live that way the entire time. And it is it is so amazing to be in nature for that long, to be unplugged from your cell phone and work for that long. It's, it's amazing. I imagine it's super cool doing it all at once. That's a feat, but there's something that, that's probably cool about taking a week and doing it a little bit at a time too. And then do you, do you always do it in order? Like, do you always pick up where you left off or do you sort we of do. Like, like, as long as I do all of it, it counts. We, we go right back to where we, we left off. So my hiking partner last year broke her leg in the middle of our hike. So we had to hop down the mountain um, in Flag Pond, Tennessee, and get someone to take us to, some stranger to take us to our car. Um, but we survived it. So she's she's got a, um, a plate in her leg and she's ready to go back out next month. <laughs> Do it. We might have to do it when you finish <laughs> 22 years. You have to come back and we'll do a whole podcast on this. Um, that's, that is a very cool uh, thing to, to, to carry on. And obviously, I have a friend now too, and a great story about how you got her out of, off the trail with a broken leg. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with us today. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to Podcast Rally. Review us on your favorite podcast app. If you like this episode, share it with a friend.